This is Livable Income Vancouver, the podcast dedicated to bringing together the voices of the feminist, racial equality, and anti-poverty movements to the campaign for a guaranteed livable income. the Livable Income Vancouver podcast. I'm Kathleen. And I am Shauna. And today we are discussing the common myths and concerns surrounding a guaranteed livable income with our guest, Cynthia LaRondel, who has been a longtime advocate of the guaranteed livable income movement. So thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. Over Skype, I should say. Yes, we're all (laughs) in our homes through Skype. Um, So before we get into today's episode, which I think is a really important one, because a lot of people, when they first hear about um, basic income or guaranteed livable income, they are maybe hesitant about certain aspects of it and have some concerns. So this, I think, will really help clear up some of that. Um, I did want to bring up um, just with the the CERB that's being given out in Canada, um, the $2,000 a month. Um, they just announced today uh, that they lifted some of the eligibility criteria because a lot of people, as we discussed in the first episode um, of this podcast, um, that uh, it was leaving out a lot of people. So now um, they just announced uh, that seasonal workers can um, apply and you can also make up to $1,000 a month and still get your $2,000 from the CERB um, coming in, which is great because I think uh, myself included and a lot of other people who have some sort of self-employment um, income, they were having to like turn, make, like make the decision to turn away jobs. Um, so it was kind of like punishing people who were still trying to work during this in a safe way, obviously, like through online um, stuff. But yeah, I just thought that was interesting that they did actually make that change. Mm -hmm. It's really good because people were having to make a a choice between like a long-term economic plan, maybe taking on new clients or new contracts versus short-term immediate need, which is Mm -hmm. an unfair kind of a choice. So I'm glad they have made those changes. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so I think we were going to get into some of the things that um, people respond with when they hear about the idea of a universal basic income. I just find that interesting, like people are sort of against it until it affects them personally. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I think that um, th- people are actually making jokes on on Twitter about, oh, now that I got my my government uh, grant in the mail, I'm just gonna sit in my room and play video games. But everybody <laughs> knows they're being, everyone knows yeah. that as being very sarcastic because yeah. it's actually people are finding it really hard to stay home and do nothing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it really goes against human nature that we want to be we want to be doing things and finding meaning and being creative and and all those things because I think that's one of the big myths that I've come across um, and I probably talked to over the years you know probably thousands of people about this because um, in 2005 I actually did a project asking the question how women would benefit from a guaranteed livable income mm-hmm. um, and that report is you can find it online if you if you search hard um, but yeah that's one of the things is how people are looking and defining what we consider work because yeah a lot of people will say oh people just won't work if they if they get money for nothing mm-hmm. for free um, and I think that I think that's becoming more clear to people now that that's not actually the case and it's actually really hard to to suddenly you're you're not allowed to to work. I actually was listening to a podcast uh, this morning with a, a woman in England and I think they have pretty severe restrictions right now. Um, and she was like she was joking. She was like, oh, you know, I always I always wanted to just like stay home from work and not have to go to work. And she's like, now. I feel it's a privilege and I wish I could go. It's so hard. So yeah. I think that this is kind of a strange way for people to find out like what human nature is really about. And it's not like, it's really hard to do nothing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And for some people too, their work is, is not meaningful to them um, and, and not positive necessarily in their lives. And People might decide to leave certain kinds of jobs. I can see that happening as a result of a guaranteed livable income. People might reject certain kinds of work or certain working conditions or certain pay rates. Uh, but I, I agree with you that people are likely to look for meaning. And one of the sources of meaning that for most people is some form of work, some form of productive activity, um, which might people might turn to kinds of productive activity that we often don't pay for right now as well. So different kinds of creative pursuits or different kinds of care pursuits um, that could be for other individuals or for larger issues in the society. Um, So I think the question of work also shows how narrow our conception of what counts as work in our society and it's when we take account of what people think about as meaningful meaningful work not just paid work then we get this much bigger sense of what work could be or how we could think of work and sharing work in our society um in the manitoba income uh experiment that they did in manitoba i think it was in the 1970s um i think the only people that looking at the data had that they found that the only people who quit their jobs or reduced their paid work was uh, parents of probably mostly mothers then of young children um, and also um, older teenagers stayed in school longer rather than quitting and and taking paid work and I mean I grew up in a farming uh, community in northern Alberta 
And yeah, that was, you know, that, that happened quite a bit. <laughs> that, mm. I mean, when the whole thing about work, um, you know, I think a lot of it, even now, how we think about work can be pinned down to sort of our agricultural roots. I mean, at the turn of the century, like 1900s, not 2000s, but in the early 1900s, most people were doing some kind of rural type work. There was a huge portion of the workforce that was on farms. And so I think when people have this idea that, um, oh, people are going to be lazy, that I think that might even like stem back through the generations because on a farm, everybody is pitching in and there would be a lot of resentment if one person wasn't. And in fact, my father, he really liked to invent things. And when he, even when he was a kid, he loved like tinkering with stuff. And he figured out a way to open the chicken coop door from his bedroom by rigging up a, a rope pulley system. <laughs> and, uh, and then he kind of got like, he, I think he, he got like teased about that for like being lazy. And because he was always <laughs> so sensitive about being considered lazy that he was oh. always sort of really on like, you know, on this whole thing about being a hard worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was against a guaranteed income for many years. But then he started late in life. He was really behind it because he saw that people couldn't do the things that were so important, like uh, learning how to grow food and Mm -hmm. spending time with their children and doing like uh, cultural pursuits that would be important to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that so much of the paid work was really horrible. So he really got behind the idea of a guaranteed income very late in life. I mean, we probably talked about it for 10 years <laughs> and argued about it because he had this in his mind, this idea that you have to be, you know, like working hard is the thing to do. But then the economy has changed. So, that so many things that are so important are unpaid or even discouraged. They're hard to do. And so many things that are paid are actually like destructive or wasteful or um, they have no sort of actual productive purpose to people's real needs. Yes. And I think there's a lot of, you know, when we look at what's happening right now in terms of the pandemic and we see what kinds of jobs our society needs in this period of time, it's not to say that those are the only jobs that our society ever needs. But we can see certainly that there are some very central types of work, such as caring for the elderly, doing all the range of work in hospitals, providing the basic um, foods and other things that humans need to survive, especially in an urban environment. We need to shop at the grocery store. Um, these are these are you know fundamental kinds of work that are about caring for others, providing for others. And oftentimes a lot of these jobs are done by women and a lot of them are not that well paid. Um, You know, we think about hospitals as being doctors and nurses, but actually hospitals have this whole other range of staff who are doing all kinds of other work um, that is not as well paid as as the like doctor and even nurse um, kinds of work and are, you know, fundamental to the operations of those institutions and Um, So even just kind of going to your point and and thinking about how that an example of that right now, we can see that um, 
this pandemic is kind of making bare the work that is really totally vital. Um, and some other kinds of work maybe is, you know, not so vital um, and maybe isn't actually vital in any circumstance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like how we not only define work, but view some work as more important, like you were saying. I think having a guaranteed livable income will help sort of reframe that. I know like when I've discussed it with friends or coworkers before this idea, they're really opposed to the idea of someone getting something for nothing. And then the other common one is, um, well, that's not fair to someone who works really hard their whole life. And now someone who isn't, you know, working as hard in their eyes is all of a sudden, like, has the money to cover their basic living necessities. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts were about that. You mean, like, targeting uh, a program, an income support program versus a universal income support program? Is that what you mean? Well, no, just people's sort of, like, initial reaction is, they're opposed to a GLI because they think it wouldn't be fair to the person who has like worked really hard for their success. Um, Oh yeah. I could talk to that. (laughs) Well, there's wonderful diagram um, that I've seen of an iceberg where there's the, and it's in regards to the economy. So in the economy, you could say the visible part of the iceberg is the paid economy and the underwater part that we don't see below the water is the um, is the invisible economy of unpaid work. And it's much, much bigger. And it would include things like nature. And mm-hmm. it would include indentured work. It would include uh, women, mostly women's unpaid work to produce Um, the next generation of workers and consumers and all those things that are not paid but they are actually the foundation that the the visible part the the formal part of the economy couldn't function without those it's built on it's built on top of that foundation that Mm -hmm. isn't recognized and that I mean a lot of people just don't recognize it at all um, as as uh, that what they're doing to get their paid work would not be possible without the unpaid work. And like I wrote an article called um, The Manly Mythology of Work. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that a lot of the ways that we view work, like so much work is invisible because it's not seen as hard work. It's, it's very invisible and I had speculated that if babies were built in factories on assembly lines with heavy-duty tools, um, <laughs> that uh, it, by sweaty workers in overalls, then maybe creating human capital might be considered hard work. But that's not how it's perceived. <laughs> totally. Because <laughs> it is hard There's, work. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. There's so much unfairness in our current income and economic system people are working very very hard at jobs that are very paid very differently you know as you were saying there's so much work that isn't recognized as work it seems to me that the question of fair and unfair 
is about kind of this culture that we've been steeped in about again mm-hmm. what counts as work and who who's deserving and on what basis you're deserving which is you know has a lot to do with really how kind of privileged you are to be perceived as contributing to the economy mm-hmm. versus you know quote unquote taking from the economy which i i don't see i don't see that as being those being fair distinctions in our society currently I remember vividly one time, because uh, I used to do a lot of welfare advocacy, and I went to the welfare office with, with a single mother, and I always liked to to get a bit sort of, you know, preachy when they were not being very cooperative, um, with the like when welfare wasn't being cooperative. Um, and I said to the welfare worker, I said, you know, she, she looking after young children is hard work. Um, Because I think they were trying to get her to go and do a whole bunch of job interviews or something. And the welfare worker said, yes, but she gets paid in hugs. (laughs) (laughs) And and I thought thought about that for a while. I was like, well, if you have that criteria, you know, okay, so anybody who enjoys their job and is helping others, okay, they can all just get paid in hugs. (laughs) I mean, it just doesn't make any sense that if you start thinking about that so so yeah if you if you have a job that has meaning and you're helping people that that you don't need pay like mm-hmm. it's just preposterous and yet that's how the work that mothers do is is thought of as sort of in this sentimental way um and yet anyone who's ever done uh caring work whether they're caring for elders or caring for children or you know, caring for friends or family members, um, that they know it's it it's like um, it's emotional work. It like is a it, you might not be showing the strain by you know like you're you're sweating and like you know straining your muscles, but the emo- there is an emotional um, strength that it takes to do that type of work. And that's really not recognized that that and I think that's what you're saying, too, about like the people who work in hospitals and and wow. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're seeing now, like you were saying, that the thing it's bringing those things into sharp relief about what's important work and and what's perhaps not. Um, so I think uh, just to go back to what we were what started um this was the myth that if people are given money, they'll lose interest in work and they'll be lazy. So I think now people have like a personal experience um, with that not being the case with this pandemic. And even if some people like do slow down and become quote unquote lazy, that in my line of work as a nutritionist like a lot of people are burnt out and Mm -hmm. maybe they do need to slow down for a little bit so that would be um like I I see like people talk about self-care a lot and how important that is and I feel like it would allow people to kind of like nip that before it really like progresses into more serious like chronic illnesses and diseases um so I don't really think 
taking care of yourself and slowing down should be viewed as like a negative if -hmm. you need it. I mean, so many people are overworked, underpaid, (laughs) like we're talking about. Um, And I think overall that would just make a healthier, happier and more productive, whatever you take that to mean, uh, society, if we are given that freedom. It would produce more health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so some of the other things that are kind of concerns that people have about uh, a GLI being implemented, um, would it replace uh, other public services or would it like undermine campaigns um, for better wages or better public services? Uh, so what are you, some of your thoughts about that? Like, would a GLI replace, like, health care and child care benefits and what we already have in place? Well, I think how you guys have it in your platform is pretty clear for the Live Vancouver. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> we're, we're saying that, no, we we can't and should not should not seek to get rid of any of our public services. In fact, we should use a guaranteed livable income to make them even more robust than they are right now. If we decide collectively as a society to value and pay the cost of services like healthcare, education, including post-secondary, and by healthcare, I mean a more robust system than we have right now even, uh, we could think about dental care, farmer care, things that are not currently included. Um, education, which has suffered uh, funding cutbacks at all levels in recent years. We could talk about an expanded public transportation system. We could talk about finally getting a national child care program. I mean, these things, if we if we decided to provide them collectively, we would build more robust services we would pay less than if we paid individuals to pay for them individually. It would cost us overall less as a society and people would be guaranteed those uh, public services, public institutions that are better provided throughout through the whole society um, rather than on an individual case by case basis. So I see guaranteed livable income as supporting those services and I see it as being intrinsically linked to them there are some who would say we should get rid of all all kinds of public services and simply implement an income guarantee i think that is you know a just an out and out libertarian lie um that that somehow that would be functional for people it would not there are plenty of things that we simply cannot purchase from the market they are public goods and they should be provided publicly. And in fact, we, there's no way that we can afford to purchase all those things from the market unless we're phenomenally wealthy, um, which a guaranteed livable income would not make us phenomenally wealthy on an individual basis. So to my mind, a guaranteed livable income supports a call for more robust public services and expanded uh, public, service, public services in general. Yeah. Yeah, I think that one way to look at a guaranteed livable income actually is as a health initiative, 
because if you look at the determinants of health, I think like three quarters of them or a majority of them are um, linked to income and status. Um, and so having people who have that stress removed from their lives of, you know, just that thought that they could end up losing everything, losing their home and losing income and not knowing how they're going to survive, that is an enormous uh, stressor and mm-hmm. can really wreak havoc on people's health. And they have the, they have the health research to back that up. Um, and I mean, I always used to wonder the Ministry of Health and the Welfare Ministry were really at cross purposes because the Ministry of Health would actually know that keeping people in poverty is a huge health cost to the public uh, health system and it just destroys people's health. And yet, meanwhile, the other branch of government is actively destroying people's health through the welfare system and how inadequate it is and the stress that they would put people under, uh, threatening to cut them off. I mean, people were, you know, when when that was happening um, to people with disabilities, there was a huge spike in the number of suicides uh, from, yeah. from people that were being reassessed, their, their disability status was being reassessed. I think this was about in 2005 and, um, yeah, that's that's that is just completely, as far as a public health perspective, like a GLI um, perfectly fits in with with a strong healthcare system. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was just listening to something about um, how the death rate from COVID nineteen is like seventy percent higher in um, the Bronx, and um, they have super high rates of asthma there oh. because of the air pollution. So it's like, if that's where the only place you can afford to live mm-hmm. because the rent is cheaper, then you're like at mm-hmm. higher risk for all of these like health issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we know from the U.S. Statistics recently too that African Americans are dying at much higher rates proportionately to population, mm-hmm. which is connected to a combination of of racism and income inequality. That these two factors are compounding each other in terms of health um, before susceptibility, health before the virus, susceptibility to mm-hmm. the virus in terms of job exposure and. Uh, situations like where you can afford to live, um, access to healthcare in the United States, which is a very unequal system. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these factors can compound each other if we don't have a view that um, we need to collectively consider the the situations people are facing, the fundamental inequalities people are facing, and have a plan to address them. We are simply mm-hmm. going to reproduce them. And to my mind, the the guaranteed livable income goes together with public services in terms of creating a society in which a greater number of people have greater access to the resources of that society. Um, I think one of the common um, mythologies that I used to hear a lot, and and people still say this is, although not so much now, (laughs) is we can't afford it. And 
I always say that that question needs to be flipped over and it's really, we can't afford poverty. Like it's such a huge cost to have part of your population living in poverty and that people might think it doesn't affect them, but it, it does and it will. And it just makes for bad public health in general. And yeah, um, you know, that's definitely, again, I think that combining uh, like or framing um, a guaranteed livable income as a health initiative can be a good way to explain it. And I think now, like when people, so many people are facing that stress of, I have no money coming in. I don't know what I'm going to do. And that then that's such a high stress level um, that, and this is how uh, poor people have been living for, well, all the time in the recent history. Mm-hmm. It's just, been, you know, people living on a, for years with that kind of stress in their life. And, um, and that is not good public health strategy. Yes. Yeah, and it goes back to our earlier conversation about fair and not fair too. People neglect the amount of work it is to be poor and that poverty is not some choice that you make in your life. It's often a condition that you are born into to some extent. We don't have a lot of class mobility in this society. There's not equality of opportunity for everybody. And um, the, the work of living in poverty is is enormous um, and yeah. and unfair. It's an unfair distribution of that work. Yeah, there's... one of the myths, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna change the topic. So maybe maybe yeah. you wanna say more on this topic. Um, well, it's kind of, it's it's not so much around the, the mythologies around a guaranteed income, but the mythologies around poverty. Like what you're saying, there's so many myths that, oh, it's because of bad character. It's because of, um, you know, uh, laziness or this or that. Um, and that you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And there used to be uh, in the early 1900s, there was a series of stories um, called Horatio Alger stories, where um, the theme was that a poor uh, orphan or some some person who's really hard done by um, lifts himself up by his bootstraps and uh, has a good life because he works hard and is virtuous. Okay, so when the Great Depression broke out, the popularity of those books plummeted <laughs> because people were like, oh yeah, that's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like external factors that I have no control over that is causing ca- causing poverty, mass poverty that is affecting so many people. Um, and I was looking recently at like pop culture, current pop culture, and those themes of people that, you know, they're they're going through a hard time, they don't have any money, and yet they work hard, and suddenly, you know, they've found success. Like those stories of success are propaganda really against poor people because it presents this idea that oh everybody can do this and I think those that propaganda is so has been so destructive because it's kind of like what's driving the politics behind the social programs that oh people won't accept people getting high um 
income supports because everybody knows you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and blah, 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 work hard and all those things. And they're just not, they're just not true. It's just propaganda. Um, so I, I just thought I'd mention the, the myths around poverty. And, and if you watch for it in stories, you can see still these ideas of like the movies that are around somebody that struggled and then they worked hard and then they got successful. Like, I mean, there's also kind of the criminal aspect to these stories where, like, in Breaking Bad, he works hard as a criminal. It's <laughs> great riches that way. But, of course, those ones never end well. So they're also kind of morality tales. But, yeah, just yeah. the myths around, around poverty, I think, are also becoming exposed right now. <laughs> so, yes. One of the, I think, kind of related ideas is around um, a current campaign. I think it's primarily in the UK for something called a universal basic services. And so often, like, juxtaposed to a guaranteed livable income. So we, should, we shouldn't go for a guaranteed livable income. We should go for universal basic services, which would include things like public free trouble transportation, a guaranteed right to housing, guaranteed right to food. It sounds really good in a certain sense. But I think in some ways it plays into those myths around poverty again, because instead of saying, okay, poor people actually know what they need and what they want, and if we gave them some money to make some choices, they would get what they need and what they want, we are again saying we should determine through public policy what people are entitled to. And of course, through those I, that idea of a universal basic service, we would be kind of saying, okay, well, this is the food that you're entitled to access, the housing that you're entitled to access. And there would be always these means tests to say, yes, you are entitled or no, you're not, um, which again, you know, is kind of this who's, who's deserving and who's not kind of question that always also comes into judgments of people who are poor. Um, and so, you know, even though I'm on the one hand saying guaranteed livable income would absolutely support robust public services. I really value a guaranteed livable income also because it offers people the autonomy to decide how to spend their money, what matters most to them in terms of how they would spend their money. And I, I think that's really working against some of those myths of poverty, which are instead saying people, poor people cannot be trusted or that somehow you know they just made a bunch of bad decisions so we can't let them have any money because they're just going to go on making bad decisions instead it recognizes people are often poor through circumstances that they did not control in the first place so the um gli gives them back some of that control mm -hmm. yeah i think that's important to point out um going back to like how we're gonna afford this um I think Basic Income Canada Network put out a report with some, like they did some number crunching about like how this could be feasible for like a large population. I don't know if either of you had information about that specifically. Uh, maybe that could be something we uh, get into in another episode. But yeah, I just wanted to mention that um, like we have kind of examined how this could be paid for. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I haven't really been that enthusiastic about talking about 
um, the payment side of things because people don't factor in things like how society would change in a really healthy way. Um, and we don't know exactly like the cost for things like healthcare might go down. I mean, right now, healthcare is the number one cost in the province. Um, and for example, I, I know that some of the research that was going around when, you know, when I was doing that report was that one homeless person will cost in public, um, I guess, public expenditures like $40,000 a year because of interactions with police, interactions mm -hmm. with the healthcare system, interactions with the courts or, or all these other things that I think actually since then there's been some some pilot projects showing that just giving people housing is uh, is much cheaper than having people be homeless um and so i think if you just on the on a on a broad scale if people have the guaranteed livable income that we don't know how much society will change because people's health might drastically improve mm -hmm. um would spend like they'd probably be uh, eating healthier for one mm -hmm. um, and perhaps this whole like right now with the pandemic there has been a massive increase in the number of people growing um, vegetable gardens um, like on the island here many of the gardening stores are completely emptied of, of vegetable seeds um, and the lands the landscaping companies that sell garden soil some of them are sold out of garden soil. Um, so, I mean, that, you know, the fact that people would be eating um, much healthier could have a, quite a, a broad uh, benefit to, to society. And also, like, how would the criminal justice system be impacted? Like, I don't, you know, like, there's just things that we just don't know that would be a massive benefit to society, which would mean that uh, guaranteed livable income would be actually the most affordable thing that we could be doing. And what we're doing right now is horrendously expensive and is only working for a tiny minority of people. Like you were saying, Shauna, there's so many people that are burnt out and stressed out and just really um, on edge about their finances constantly. Yeah, um, uh, apparently... Um break-ins into retail stores in Vancouver is really high right now because most of the retail like the small businesses are closed so they're not like being occupied um, but I'd imagine if everyone was getting like a GLI or even like the CERB right now that those people would be less inclined to like go rob and like break into these like small businesses so yeah, crime, health, like I think so many things would be impacted. Mm -hmm. Even potentially child welfare services um, might be impacted as well in a in a very positive sense. A lot of times poverty is a real issue in terms of involvement of child welfare ministries. Um, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Um, I think, it, you know, it's fairly clear that if you if you want to destroy families, just force them to live in poverty, that, that'll do it. So like, what kind of a society are we really when we're doing that to children? Mm -hmm. And we know that 
children growing up in poverty are going to be affected for the rest of their lives. There's mm -hmm. plenty of research that talks about that. There's mm -hmm. um, an author, I think it's Richard Wilkinson, um, who has several books on on that theme and just the, I guess, the impacts on health and on children from poverty. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to say, I think even, um, you know, what we're looking at right now around the world, um, there's a few reports I've read of really high increases in the rates of domestic violence predominantly committed by men against the women that they live with or are in a, in a relationship with. Um, and one of the, you know, the calls that we have at Livable Income Vancouver is to make sure that this funding is given to individuals, not to households. And sometimes people kind of reject this idea thinking that this is, you know, just like an overpayment. You know, if you have two adults in a household who are receiving the guaranteed livable income, then um, this is just such a disincentive to working, et cetera. But the reality of women's lives very often is that they do not have control over the household income. And with the extreme rise in domestic violence rates in various countries around the world right now with the lockdown and the extreme difficulty women have in leaving violent situations, that that individual payment is so important to give her just an immediate access to financial resources because in my experience of working in transition houses, leaving a violent relationship, especially with young children, which is a very common time in which to leave a violent relationship, is just a route to poverty. That we don't in our society actually support women to leave those situations. We have a a value that we think we they should leave, but we don't put in place the measures that would make that more possible. So a guaranteed livable income given individually, to my mind, is one of those. And that might mean that as a result, we would see a lot of shifts in terms of uh, family relationships, household dynamics, that kind of thing. But again, it could be extremely positive for women um, having that additional power to call on and rely on um, to exercise their their freedom and their rights. Yeah, that reminds me of um, when I was doing the interviews in 2005, um, one of the women I was talking to said that she had she had remembered that during the time when people had a universal family allowance, um, it, that's that program stopped in I think it was like 1988 something like that but it used to be that there was a family allowance program that went to the women who uh, the parents the, the mothers um, for each child they would get a payment and that was universal so it was not a targeted program so it went to the families of women who were married to perhaps wealthy men and what the woman told me was that um, she knew several women that were like, that was the only money they had any control over. Mm -hmm. And that everybody was happy on those days when the family allowance came and the mothers would take the the, the kids out to get uh, clothing or whatever they needed. Some, some mothers may have saved it up for their children to give them as um, part of the, like if they were going to go to college or something, um, if they could do that. But other other mothers would need it but I was kind of surprised I had never heard of that 
that mm-hmm. it was like wives of well-off men that that was the only money that they ever had mm-hmm. any say over. Mm-hmm. So I think that mm-hmm. your is very uh, that's very true that it absolutely must go to individuals and not to not to families as like as a one check kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know anything about what used to be uh, called the Bolsa Familia from Brazil? Do you? Not very much. Um, I have a little bit right here on the Wikipedia, but I don't know Mm -hmm. if that's going to give us our necessary information. Um, I think it was means tested. Um, and yes, there was requirements. So, um, school, children's school attendance, for example, was a requirement. They had to meet that requirement to get the money. Um, and I think there were others too, but I don't know what they all were. So it was given to families below a certain income level. Was it just, there was one program, I cannot remember the country, but it was only given to the female heads of households. (laughs) so they um I think they yeah I wish I could remember more about that um and I thought it might have been the Bolsa Familia but I think they were like finding out that if they gave it to male heads of households it didn't always get to the children Mm. (laughs) it wasn't always spent on the children (laughs) so but I cannot remember the country uh where, where that was the case but yeah yeah I think one way uh, that we can um, discuss some of the current concerns people have is a discussion around um, some of the pilot projects that have been implemented around the world in regards to a GLI. So I don't know what we found out, um, if either of you had any thoughts or things to share about the pilot projects. Um I used to really follow that closely, but I haven't been following the newest ones. I just, I know there was one, I think in Namibia that was done in like 2001 or something like that, that had very positive outcomes. Um, And I know that um, I actually heard uh, Guy Standing speak. (laughs) Guy Standing is actually the name of a person. (laughs) Okay. And um, yeah, it's not just a guy standing speaking. No, his name is confusing, but his he's a well-known writer on um, basic income. And he was involved with a project in India that they had done, a pilot project. And I heard him speak in Montreal at a, um, a conference. And I remember him saying that the one group that was really angry about the pilot project were people who are moneylenders. So they were, yeah, because I guess, you know, people would be desperate for to get some money in in a desperate circumstance and say they would be like borrowing money for moneylenders. And then with the pilot project, they they didn't have to do that. And so the moneylenders were not happy, Um, but everybody else was. You know, I don't follow so much the um, the pilots as well, but. I I think one of the myths that we hear so often is that we have to test, we have to do small projects to test mm-hmm. this idea that we can't, we can't simply try it out. We have to test and test and test and test. The truth is it has been tested. Mm-hmm. Like there are pilot projects 
Bolsa Familia in Brazil. It's been adopted versions in other Latin American countries. There's been a dividend paid in Alaska for decades. There was a pilot in Manitoba. There was a uh, an unfortunately um, ended too early pi pilot in Ontario. And when the most recent provincial government was elected, they ended that pilot. Um, there's been pilots in India, in Namibia, in different countries in Europe. Finland had a version, the Netherlands had a version, Italy uh, wanted to, Scotland is looking at it. None of these are universal programs. They aren't necessarily set at a livable rate either. Mm -hmm. um, they almost all have some kind of means test um, and they're often something less than uh, livable income. Uh, but almost all of them have show positive outcomes. Um, so I think that we could extrapolate from all that data to try to understand what the impact is. Um, and we certainly already have a whole lot of data about what the problems with poverty are and what the problems of inequality are in our society and how that's actually just getting worse and worse over time, not better with the current systems that we have. So to my mind, the call to continue to test it is just a kind of delaying tactic to, to push it into that realm where then, you know, it takes three years to set up the pilot and then it takes three to five years to run the pilot and then it takes three years to analyze the data and yeah. it's a decade and we still don't have a GLI. I agree, so. it was an emergency like, decades ago and it's an emergency now given the lower life expectancy of people living in poverty like what are we yeah. saying like it's 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 inhumane and uh, I just like as an ethical choice for society like how can we not make this choice yeah what kind of yeah. monsters are we <laughs> yeah and like what like if we just implement it now without having like more tests and more pilots, which we already have a lot of, like what's the worst that would happen? I mean, our current system, there's already so many downfalls and people are, too many people are living in poverty. Um, yeah. So like, let's just try it out. Yeah. Well, heaven, heaven forbid that people would be slightly happier. That yeah. What a terrible thing that would be. <laughs> um, I don't know if you ever um, go on the Twitter account, Humans of Basic Income. They started up when the Ontario pilot was cancelled, I think. And they, at that time, put up a lot of um, great little vignettes about what people were able to do for the short time that they did receive the, the money from the pilot project. And what people talked about is things like buying winter coats and winter boots and just not dealing with the stress of worrying about if you're going to be able to pay the next month's rent and just having really basic forms of security and what a difference that made in people's lives. Mm. Um, yeah, just like you're saying, I don't see why that doesn't move us. That That's data, you know, mm -hmm. data that we see repeated over and over again that's telling us something is really wrong. We need to move forward with mm -hmm. a new plan. 
in my opinion, a guaranteed livable income. Yeah, exactly. So I'm wondering um, if there are any final take home messages that you wanted to put out there before we wrap up today. Yeah, um, I think I think you mentioned it earlier when we were talking about it earlier about the, the concept of uh, productivity and how there's this idea. And I think, Kathleen, you said, you know, how we're steeped in these cultural ideas about work. And so there's this cultural idea that we're steeped in about work that productivity is always good. And we should be striving to grow our economy, be more productive and all this kind of thing with. But is that actually good? <laughs> because yeah. if you look at the costs to the environment and the cost to human health, that it's pretty obvious that it's not good. And so in some discussions with with other people on this topic, um, it became pretty clear that doing nothing is preferable than doing harm. So you have, there's three things. There's like um, beneficial work, mm -hmm. harmful work, and neutral, doing nothing. And so if you had to choose between doing harmful or being neutral, obviously neutral is going to be better than doing harm. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that sometimes I think we need to just rehabilitate the idea that doing nothing is a harmful thing. I mean, first of all, it is it is very difficult for human beings to do nothing. But just as a cultural concept, it's it's like so demonized. Um, the concept of doing nothing has been so, so demonized as something bad, when in fact, it's something neutral, which is better than things that are being done that are harmful, um, mm. such as products that harm health or activities that are harming the environment, which I think is a huge concern to um, more and more people. Yeah, I totally agree. Yes. Um, one of the, the myths we didn't quite touch on yet is sometimes the guaranteed livable income is referred to as a citizen's income or a citizen's dividend. But um, I think what we've tried to address in our group is that we would like it to be for everyone who is able to work in the country, not just citizens or in Canada's case, permanent residents, um, because um, we don't want to create a system in which there is a group of people who have access to a benefit and others who do not. That will create a, a tiered labor system in which some people can mm -hmm. be highly exploited and others um, have the ability to say no. I think that, you know, thinking about uh, a country that has a more fair labor system, we would want to um, everybody to have the same power to say no to bad or to harmful work, right? To harmful to them, to the environment, uh, to, to the society itself, um, whatever that might be. So that's one of them. Yeah, one of the myths that we hadn't talked about yet that I wanted to raise. Yeah, yeah that's a good one. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I totally agree. Having, having any people in situations where they're going to be um, vulnerable to exploitation 
is is uh, that's not a good situation. Yeah, yeah. And I think right now, um, especially, it's non-citizens of either Canada or the United States that are working on the farms and keeping our food system going. They should have access to it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, they're already in a very vulnerable position. Yeah. In that. Yes. And I, I really like the idea of rehabilitating doing nothing. And in fact, we could say in this period of time that doing nothing is not just neutral, it's beneficial. By doing yeah. nothing, we are not overwhelming our healthcare system. And mm -hmm. so it's available to be responsive to those who need it the most. And um, just looking at what's happening in other countries, that we're not able to get on this plan of doing nothing as early as we were, or they had more instance of the virus before we, before they got onto that plan. Mm -hmm. um, they've faced enormous consequences as a result. And um, so, yeah, it's not, it's some, some cases not just neutral, but in yeah, fact. Actually, I think you're right. I think probably in every case doing nothing is beneficial because it means you're not wasting resources. Like you're not driving back and forth in your car to a perhaps mm -hmm. pointless job that's killing your soul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like this. It's, uh, well, not that we're in a pandemic, but <laughs> just that some people are getting extra time to kind of rethink um, maybe their passions or their creativity or how they feel about their current jobs. So I think that will have interesting outcomes. Yeah, I've heard on different, you know, phone-in shows that people are kind of like reevaluating, especially, you know, thinking about um, mortality has also made people like think about what is important to them and how mm -hmm. are they spending their time. And you know, that might have a huge, like post-pandemic, that might have a huge impact on how society changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think we touched on quite a few of the common myths and concerns surrounding the, uh, a GLI being implemented. Um, I guess my final thoughts on the topic is just like what we said, like just our ingrained uh, notions of what it means to be like a protect productive member of society what we consider important work or essential work and work that is like unpaid um, and yeah just that there will be uh, savings it's not going to like cost us more if we start weighing out like the benefits like we were talking about with maybe like health and um, like crime rates so, yeah, I think if we do get any more um, uh, maybe emails or questions in regards to people's concerns, um, we can address that in the next episode. But for now, um, I think we've covered quite a bit. So thank you so much for listening today. And thank you very much to our guest, Cynthia LaRondel from Livable for All, which you can find at livableincome.org. 
as well as on Twitter and Instagram under livable for all. And it's the number four. We'll put the um, links in the show notes. And if you want to stay up to date with Livable Income Vancouver, please follow us on Instagram, Livable Income Vancouver, and our website, livableincomevancouver.com. 